this week is the last of this short little series, part of the short little series here on the Bible. And so today I want to talk with you about the subject of where truth comes from. Um, more particular is how do we handle correctly uh, God's Word and the Bible. And so um, I want to give you two methods here um, as, a point, as a way of introduction of how to approach the text. One of them is the word, fancy word called exegesis. That's not Jesus, it's a Greek word. And the other is uh, eisegesis. And so let me give you, a, we have some slides here for you, and it'll show you the difference between these two. Um, which one are we going to go to first? Go to the next one. All right, exegesis. Exegesis comes from the Greek word exegeo, and it means to pull into, or to pull out of. That is to go to the biblical text, and we want to pull out of the biblical text what truth is there, what God is saying in the biblical text. So we're not coming to the text to transpose our opinions or our thoughts or our ideas on it. Rather, we're coming to the Bible uh, just completely as a blank slate and saying, God, what is it that your word is trying to say to us? And so that's what exegesis is. Now, the second way, the second approach of Scripture is what's called eisegesis. And this is the, from the Greek word eisegeo, which means to pull in or to read into. And in this particular approach to the Scripture, what you're doing is you're starting with an application. You're starting with a conclusion of where you want, what position, what value, what principle you already have, and then you come to the Bible and you're searching for a verse to support your application. And so there's, that's the two approaches that you have here when you're coming to the Scripture to rightly handle, to correctly handle God's Word. Either uh, there's the one approach on the one hand of exegesis, there's the approach on the other hand of eisegesis. We here at Hebron exegete the Scripture. We start with where the Bible is and we teach what God's Word says. We hopefully never, I don't think I do, sometimes it may happen, uh, but um, but we don't, uh, we don't come to the Scriptures with our own preconceived ideas and our own applications searching for some sort of a verse um, to support that. And so those are two approaches to Scripture. So um, what I want to show you here is um, basically kind of walk you through a Bible study, if you would, of a passage of Scripture that demonstrates both exegesis and eisegesis. On the one hand, where it's, bringing, it's pulling out of Scripture what Scripture has to say, and then a Bible study where it shows, hey, look, we're going to apply to Scripture an application, and we'll see how that muddies the waters of our theology. But before we get to that, we got to stand up, right? So let's stand up for Scripture. We're going to read from 2 Timothy chapter 2, just one verse. It's a short stand today. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, and we'll read together uh, this verse. And so this is Paul talking to young Timothy, and he says to Timothy these words. Y'all read with me. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. You may be seated. All right, thank you so much. All right, so um, flip over in your Bibles now to 2 Chronicles chapter 27, 2 Chronicles chapter 27, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. 2 Chronicles chapter 27, it's in the Old Testament, far to the left, 2 Chronicles chapter 27, and beginning at verse 1. It begins with these words, Jotham was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 16 years. It says that his mother's name was Jerusha daughter of Zadok. And so this is transporting us back into Israel's history during a time of the divided monarchy. I have a map for you here, and it shows you 
Israel during this particular time period that 2 Chronicles chapter 27 is capturing. Israel had divided into two nations at this point after Solomon had died. They had Israel in the north, which composed 10 of Israel's tribes, and Judah was the name of the southern nation, and it composed the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The bloodline of David ran through the tribe of Judah. The others uh, started with somebody who wasn't a bloodline of David, and so you had Israel in the north, Judah in the south. This guy, Jotham, was of the bloodline of David. He was a king of Judah, so that blob of color on the south end there of Israel. Okay, um, it says uh, there in chapter 27, verse 1, how old he is when he becomes king. Do you see that? How old was he? He's 25, right? So he's a young man starting out as a, as a king, and it says that he ruled for 16 years. Do the math. How old was he when he died? 41. So from 25 years of age to 41 years of age, this guy Jotham is the king of the southern kingdom, the king of Judah. Verse 2. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Uzziah had done. But unlike his dad, Josiah did not enter the temple of the Lord. So this verse tells us a, that this king Jotham was a good king. He was a moral king. He was an honorable king. He did right, the scripture says, in the eyes of the Lord. But apparently there's this little hiccup, and on the back side of verse 2, and it says, let me read it again, but unlike his dad, Josiah did not enter into the temple of the Lord. Josiah did something very different, at least on this point, than what his dad had done. Um, the biblical writer, and just making a summary statement of the, of the reign of this guy, Jotham. I mean, this is one the one sentence we get about Jotham. There's a couple of little detail information coming up. But um, this is the one-sentence summary. And in the one-sentence summary of Jotham's reign, it mentions that he didn't go into the temple of the Lord. So the biblical writer thought this was important enough of a detail to make mention of it in the one-sentence summary of Jotham's reign. Um, I'm listening to this sermon about a year ago of a guy, and he's preaching on this, on this text right here. And he goes on to talk about how um, this guy, Jotham, stayed out of the temple unlike his dad had done. And so he took that to mean that this guy, Jotham, stayed out of church. He didn't go to church. And so then he went on to preach about how young men are forsaking going to church, and he drew the applications there, and he talked about how young people um, are unlike the way that they were raised, unlike the example that's set for them by their parents, how many young people, when they hit the college-age years, decide to stop going to church, just like Jotham decided not to go into the temple like his dad uh, used to do. And so he spent the rest of the sermon talking about how this is a real problem in the church and how we as parents and as pastoral staff can work to reverse this trend. Now, that's a worthy topic. You say, I'd like to hear a good sermon on that sometime. Well, maybe sometime, but not today, because that's not what this passage is about. However, if the guy had read what happens before and after these verses, he would have figured out very quickly that the big conclusion that this uh, ver that these verses are making is the exact opposite of where his sermon ended up going. Let's take a look. Flip over to 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verses 15 and 16. We'll start there. 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verses 15 and 16. It says, In Jerusalem, Uzziah, that's Jotham's dad, um, in Jerusalem, Uzziah made machines designed by skillful men for use on the towers and on the corner defenses to shoot arrows and hurl large stones at people. His fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped and until he became powerful. Verse 16. But after Uzziah became powerful, 
His pride led to his downfall. Here's the key statement. His pride led to his downfall. And what did his pride lead him to do? Well, the verse tells us he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. Watch now. And he entered the temple of the Lord. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord. So here's the question. Does the Bible think that Uzziah's going into the temple was a good thing or a bad thing? The Bible says it was a bad thing, not a good thing. So what's so bad about Uzziah, the king of Judah, going into the temple? You'd think God would want him to come into church, right? Come on in here. That's where I'm hanging out. Come on in, Uzziah. Well, look at verse 17. It goes on to explain why Uzziah never should have gone in there. Look at verse 17. Azariah, the priest, the high priest, with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord, followed Uzziah in. So apparently these guys were not crazy about Uzziah going into the temple and doing what he was getting ready to do. They knew that he wasn't supposed to be in there. Uzziah knew that he wasn't supposed to be in there. But hey, he was the king. You know, we can't just stand in his way and stop him. I mean, he's a king. He can go where he wants. And so um, they're, they're following him behind him, kind of like a way to scold him kind of a way to say, hey, we're not just going to turn a blind eye and go off to some place while you go into the temple. We're going to be right there. We're going to witness this thing. And so it says they were courageous in confronting him like that. Um, verse 18, they confronted Uzziah and said, it is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. And here is why. Because that is for the priest to do the descendants of Aaron who have been consecrated, keyword consecrated, to burn incense. The word consecrated means set apart. It means to be made holy or to be made pure. And so these priests, by going into the temple where God is, remember the temple, the tabernacle, the word tabernacle is a verb in the Hebrew language, and it means to dwell. It's the place where God dwells on earth, the physical earth. God the Father left heaven, came down to the earth, dwelt in that holy of holies on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there amongst his people. He tabernacled, he dwelt amongst his people. And so uh, these priests, uh, to go into God's presence, had to go through a ritual cleansing process that they knew that Uzziah did not know and that Uzziah did not participate in before he went into the temple anyhow. And so if these priests were going to draw near to God because God's different than us, because God's holy, uh, God's pure, and we're not holy, and we're not pure. You say, well, Gordon, I've not done terrible things in my life, but if you've done anything wrong in your life, that makes you impure, that makes you have a sin-stained heart in God's presence. And so those priests couldn't just go walking into God's presence. And Uzziah couldn't just go walking into God's presence um, because of that. So if you're here this morning, and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, I want to ask you, by what means are you planning to enter into heaven? How are you going to get into God's presence? He's holy. He's pure. Uh, he's different than us in that way. And so God's not going to just let you. You're going to go in there on your own merit. Say, well, yeah, I did some good things in my life. I've done a few bad things, but I did a lot more good things. And the good things, I hope, outweigh the bad things. And hopefully God will let me in on that account. Friends, God's not going to let you in on that account because you still got a sin-stained heart. You still got that has not been dealt with. And so the only way that we can get into God's presence and feel safe and feel secure and him not pluck us off of his presence like a flea off a dog's back um, is to be washed in the blood of Jesus. Jesus. God created a remedy through Jesus 
to wash away our sins. The blood of Jesus is the stained stick of heaven that washes away your sins and mine. Um, and so if you're counting on getting into heaven by any other way than Jesus, you will be sadly and regretfully mistaken. Just something for you to think about. So Uzziah, he enters into the temple. He's not supposed to. He's not ritually cleansed like the priests are. Verse 19. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand ready to burn incense, became angry at this. He's being confronted by these priests. He's having a little fit over there. He's stomping around, temper tantrum while he's raging. Leprosy broke out on his forehead. Verse 20. When Azariah, the chief priest, the high priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead. So they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because, well, the Lord had afflicted him. Verse 21, Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house. He couldn't go in and live amongst other people. He had to leave the palace, go live in a little cottage out back or something along those lines. And he was excluded altogether from entering into the temple of the Lord. Jotham, his son, had charge of the palace and governed the people of the land. So here's the big question. Go back to chapter two, or chapter 27 and verse 2. Second Chronicles chapter 27 verse 2. This is where we started at. Jotham did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Uzziah had done. So he did uh, his, Uzziah had done a lot of really good things until he walked inside that temple. He had done a lot of good things and so Jotham did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but unlike his father, Jotham did not enter the temple of the Lord. So the big question is, did Jotham drop out of church? <laughs> I mean, if the guy had just read the chapter before, right? <laughs> All this would y'all did y'all follow that? Do I need to go back through the whole thing again? Okay, so yeah, Jotham did not drop out of church. He wasn't ducking church attendance. Clearly not. By not going into the temple, Jotham was actually not repeating the sins of his father. He was not repeating the sins of the generation before him. And so this passage in 2 Chronicles 27, verses 1 and 2 is not a lesson about how young people are dropping out of church. It's actually a lesson about not repeating the sins of the generations before. Now, both of those are great topics to preach on. I don't want to say they're not. I mean, they would be good. But only one of these conclusions actually fits the biblical text. One is an example of eisegesis, starting with an application in search of a, a text that will allow us to preach that application. The other example is an example of exegesis, which is what we do here, which is where we start with the biblical text, and then we move toward an application and say, hey, look, what's God's word, his, tr his truth, saying to us in our lives? Okay, well, that's as far as you want to go with our text today. I know this is a little bit different kind of a sermon today. I'm up here, a little professor teaching kind of stuff, so I apologize for that if that throws you off, but hang with me. And so uh, that means it's time for us to ask our most important question, which is, what difference does all this make to my life? That's our question every week. You say, Gordon, Isa, Jesus, Exa, whatever. I mean, what difference? I got kids that get to soccer practice. Uh, I got hunting stands waiting for me this afternoon. What difference does any of this stuff make to my life? Well, let's talk about that. Actually, it makes an enormous difference. It impacts your life every moment of every day. And it settles in on the question of where does truth come from? I got a slide prepared for you here, a couple of them, and I want to show you um, John Wesley. You've heard me quote John Wesley before. 
He was a great evangelist, great church reformer back in the 1600s, 1700s. He was part of the Anglican Church of England, never left the Anglican Church of England, but ended up starting these Methodist groups, which in America became the Methodist Church, and then it spawned into that denomination that is there today. And so, uh, but John Wesley taught four sources of truth in our world. And here's those four sources of truth. He taught scripture, he taught reason, tradition, and experience. Let me kind of walk through these real quickly. Scripture, he said, uh, is what we already talked about, is one source of truth. Um, reason falls in the category of things like science, things like philosophy, things like um, all the ologies that you study at the university, all the fields of study, right? Um, all of that falls under reason. Tradition. These are the things that have been passed on to you by your parents. These are the things that have been passed on to you by generations before. Value systems, beliefs about who God is. Uh, tradition gives us a, as a source of truth in our lives. Uh, church tradition, long-held beliefs. Wesley says that's another way that we, as human beings, uncover truth with a capital T. And finally, a fourth source of truth is experience. Our experience in life is a huge, a massive deposit of truth into our lives or at least a determiner of what is truth for us. But if you'll notice uh, the chart on the screen that Wesley held that scripture is primary among these four sources of truth. Do you see that? So when my reason, when my science, when my philosophy gets out of step with scripture, I default back to scripture. You with me? When my tradition, which I grew up in church maybe, and I was taught some things in church, but then I get with Scripture, and I'm realizing there's disconnect between what's in Scripture and what was, I was taught as a child, then I default back to Scripture. When my experience of sleeping with my girlfriend, which just draws the two of us together, and we're so intimate, and we just love being together like that, when it, but then I read Scripture, and it says, oh, no, no, right? Oh, no, no. It's, oh, no, no. Then I default back to Scripture. Despite what my experiences tell me, oh, it's great, it's fine, no problem. I default back to Scripture. In other words, our default as Christians should always be Scripture. And why is that? Because the Bible is where truth ultimately, friends, comes from. Because the Bible is God's truth in written form. Please say that with me. I know we don't repeat a whole lot of stuff here on Sunday mornings, but you all say that with me. The Bible is God's truth in written form. That's what it is. And so we default back to Scripture when any of those other categories from which we ascertain truth disagree with what's in Scripture. And so when any of these other disagree with Scripture, again, that's our default. So, um, but that's not a position that's held, that was a position held by John Wesley. That's not a position that's held by everybody out there in theological circles. It's certainly not held by everybody that you work with or everybody in your family. Uh, so let's take a look at how some other people view Scripture's position in these as a source of truth. So take a look at our next slide. And what this does is it throws Scripture off to the side. As an equal source of truth, not a primary, not a default source of truth, but as one source of truth amongst other sources. And so what happens in this scenario is, hey, look, uh, if my reason, if my science, if my philosophy don't line up with Scripture, then I have the right and the ability to just kind of say, well, maybe I'll take this stuff from Scripture and take this stuff from my reason, and I'll blend them together, or maybe I'll just go with what's in reason, and I'll just ignore what's in Scripture. And so we begin picky-choosy. 
We begin getting selective about what in Scripture we're going to follow, what in Scripture we're going to believe. And so when my tradition is getting out of line with Scripture in this scenario, I, you know, maybe I go with my tradition. If my experience is sleeping with my girlfriend, you know, that feels right, but I know the Scripture's over here saying we shouldn't do that, well, maybe I just won't do that as often, right? And so it kind of creates this gray area. And so this is where some folks are. They say, hey, look, Scripture is not a primary source, truth source. Uh, they, they would say that it is, yeah, it's God's truth in written form, but it's not the only source of truth, and so therefore I consult any of these other sources of truth. If they disagree with Scripture, then I can go with, well, wherever these other sources may lead me. Do you see what's happening here? Where is truth coming from? Who's the author of truth in this scenario? Me. I am. I'm determining who God is. I'm determining God's morality. I'm determining how people get to heaven. I'm determining whether there's a hell or a heaven or all any of these other things. I become the author of my own truth. And so this is what you're hearing in culture today. You ask somebody, hey, how are you going to get to heaven? We talked about that just a few moments ago. We said the only way you're going to get to heaven is by being washed by the stained stick of heaven, right? By the blood of Jesus. You ask somebody out in culture today, you know what they're going to respond with? They're going to say, well, how do you get to heaven? Well, I think that, or I believe that, that's how most of these conversations start out. And you and I need to go, time out, let me stop it right there. Don't even, don't even give me the rest. Because you need to find another true source besides your own opinion, or something you read on Facebook, or some article you read online or something you were talking about around a water cooler at work. And so that's why the reliability, friends, of Scripture is so important, because it proves the trustworthiness of this book. It proves that this book was indeed generated by God. It was, its origins are of God, that it was not just some exercise in human reason, but that it is a sure foundation and that it is telling us the straight-up and absolute truth about God, about Jesus Christ, about the plan of salvation, about heaven, about hell, and about everything else that the Bible teaches us about. Now, here's where all that work in 2 Chronicles comes around, okay? If we treat the text flippantly, if we approach the text casually, without doing the historical context, folks, I'll give you a little insight into why we do what we do here. You saw the maps a minute ago. Every week. This is why we got maps on the screen. This is why we do all the historical work. He said, oh, Gordon, here comes another timeline, right? He always going to talk about the Babylonians again. He's going to give us some more geopolitical stuff that's going on in the world. Friends, it's because, well, for two things. One, we're trying to reinforce that the Bible is real history. That this is an actual history book. The events and the people and the places and the dates and all these things in here really did happen, really did take place just as the Bible says they did. It's not some myth. It's not some fairy tale. But also, going back to the verse we read at the beginning, we want to do what Paul said to do, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to correctly handle the word of truth. Do your best to correctly handle the word of truth. We want to exhaust every effort we can Every means that we have, original languages, maps, dates, people, all that stuff, to make sure that we're getting back at the meaning that the author has. 
I'm going to say something here. Don't miss this. Every Bible verse has only one intended meaning. One. It's what the author, it's what God through the author intended for that verse to mean. But the applications are many. Friends, we've got to start not with the applications and then come into the scriptures in search of something to proof text our application. We have to start with a commitment to, you know what? This is God's truth in written form, and I'll sit with it, I'll study it, and then I will accept whatever truth the Lord has written down for me to, to know. Um, where does truth come from? Well, you are free to believe whatever you want to believe. Your friends at school are free to think whatever they want to think. But God says, hey, look, I've given you a source, a primary source, truth source, so that you can know without any doubt right from wrong, morality from immorality, how I want you to live from how I don't want you to live, how to get to heaven from the many ways that people have out there to get there. At the end of the day, friends, when all the dust settles, the only opinion that matters is the Lord's. And we say it here all the time. You don't have to wonder what God's opinion is. You don't have to wonder what he thinks. He wrote it down. So let me ask you, who is speaking into your life? Who is speaking into your life? Is it the opinions of your friends? Is it the opinions of some coworker? Who is determining for you what's right and what's wrong? Who is shaping your view of God? Is it your experience? Is it your tradition? Is it your secular textbook, your read? Or is it God's timeless, inerrant, and infallible word? You know, many of the problems that we have today in our lives, we can draw a direct line between our problems and our not paying attention to God's word. I mean, if we would live our lives on where God's word is telling us to teach, it would solve so many of our problems. But when we're over here and having problems, lots of times, it's a direct line between our problems and not following. We've gotten off course from God's word. And so that's why Paul told young Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, preach your opinions, Timothy. Tell people what you think. That's not what he said. He said, preach what's popular, Timothy. Tell people what their itching ears want to hear, Timothy. He said, preach the word. Tell people the truth. And the truth is God's word in written form. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. Let's pray together. Lord, we are inundated daily with so many perspectives and viewpoints 
value systems that you do not espouse. They are not yours. They come at us through evening news. They come at us through radio. They come at us through movies and media. They come at us through family members. They come at us in the own quietness of our mind and our own thoughts. Lord, may we renew this morning again our commitment to the Bible as the primary source of truth in our world. It is your truth in written form. And so, Lord, we thank you that you did not leave us to our own devices, to our own reasoning skills, but that you gave us this book as your source as a source of truth, Lord, that we could build our lives on, we could build our marriages on, we could build our financial platform on. Our everything, our hope for eternity. Lord, we thank you that the words in this book, the promises in this book, are true in every way. In the quietness of these time of communion this morning. Some of us, Lord, may realize that we have been listening to sources of truth, opinions, that are just dragging us away from you, that are infusing our minds with doubt and skepticism. Again, Lord, may we again this morning just reaffirm our commitment to this book which you have given us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your death on the cross. We know that reading the words on the page isn't going to save us. Only putting our faith and trust in you will accomplish that. And so, Lord, we place you in your rightful place. Remind us again, Lord, of your great love for us. We pray these things in Christ's holy name.